And if you have a Bible with you, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, as we continue to work our way through this wonderful intro to the Colossians from the Apostle Paul. One of my daughters asked me this week why we keep going over the same verses each week. And so that's easy. I went to the website and showed her the messages listed and the references for each message. And so I showed her, look, we're really not doing the same verses every week. We are kind of building on the previous one. Sometimes we sort of cover a, a few before and then go a few verses more. Well, that's what we're doing today. We're looking at verses 19 and 20, which we did last week. But just to lead us into verses 21, 22, and 23. Now remember, we've been seeing in chapter 1, especially last week, the need for this description of who Jesus is and what he's done and what it means for those who have embraced it. We call them Christians. What does it mean for Christians that Christ came, that he died, and he's raised, and that he still lives? We need that. Before we ever get to tasks, to-dos, commandments, Here's how. Before we get to practice, we, we need to build upon that first, building upon these principles of who he is and what he's done. Let's see what he's done and who he is in, in these verses. Starting in verse 19, the Apostle Paul writes this. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, in addition to just our normal given assignment every week of meditating on and understanding, exalting in the, the verses we're looking at, I want to mention up front that we have to solve two dilemmas in these verses, at least eventually. In verse 20, here's the first dilemma. How are all things reconciled to God? All things reconciled to God when so many things and so many people seem anything but reconciled to him. We'll get to that. And the second one is in verse 23. The first half of it there sounds like, True Christians can leave the faith. It sounds like that what's happening, what's being said in verse 23, it sounds like there's a threat right in the heart of the gospel. But we know that the gospel isn't about threat, it's about promise. We know that the gospel isn't about condition, it's unconditional except through faith. Can true Christians leave the faith? We'll get to that later on. Let's first start out with this, the plan of reconciliation. Kind of an overview of what's to follow there in verse 19 and 20. Now the way it's worded, at least here in the ESV, also in New American Standard, some other translations as well, I find it a little bit choppy. Here's part of the problem. In almost any language, uh, there's a different, in the other language in English, there's a, a different word order. Phraseology gets put in different places. So that's certainly the case in Greek. You have, you have phrases that go here and not there. So we, we want to move from the, the Greek language to um, the way we speak today. But we also want to be faithful to what's there and not add to it or twist it too much. And so sometimes what you have is a little more wordy kind of way of putting things that, than what we would say today. So let me just try to maybe simplify some of the phrases here. Look at verse 19. Maybe the first thing to say about verse 19 is this phrase, God was pleased. See that right in the middle? God was pleased. He, he's the subject. He, he, this is the verb, the main verb. And he was pleased for the Son. God the Son to dwell, it says. 
God was pleased for the second person of the Trinity to forever become a man. He dwelled. And not just pleased with that, but he was pleased also for Jesus, that same Jesus, to reconcile all things, verse 20 says. For Jesus to be the divine agent for the fix of this whole thing, this world. For Jesus to reconcile all things, not just in theory, or or not just to each other. What does it say in verse 20? To reconcile all things to himself. That's relational. There's communion there. There's destiny there. There, There's a plan there. One day, he will finally and ultimately bring us to himself. We're reconciled in relationship now, but we're not geographically with him and near him. One day we will. The plan is to bring us to himself. And then you have this phrase, through death on a cross. The how? Through death. Through the cross. Now, that's a gospel nugget. That's a glorious gospel nugget. Some of you know that I often write in the margin of my Bible next to verses like this, GN, gospel nugget. My definition of a gospel nugget is a verse or two that someone could read by itself, knowing nothing else almost about God and the Bible and Jesus and salvation, and be saved. There's enough of substitution there. There's enough of what the hope for the world is, what he did, not just who he is. Well, this is a glorious gospel nugget. And I want to notice this phrase, pleased. What a wonderful word. We said last Sunday that it's astounding and breathtaking that the King and Lord Jesus, the creator of the universe, infinitely powerful, Ongoingly sovereign over everything, every authority in every place. The one from whom everything comes. The one to whom everything belongs. The one for whom everything is made. And so he's the one who's to have preeminence in everything. That one was born. That one was a baby. That one became a man and forever tied himself to humanity. That's the one who pursued us. That's the one who's reconciling us, who brings us peace. The king came to us. We're the rebels. And the king came from his throne to, ca- to come and reconcile us, to fix it with us. What king is like this? What king goes and finds the rebels of his kingdom and seeks them out? It seeks them out to do them good. Seeks them out to pay their price. Seeks them out to set them free. Not seeks them out to find his revenge. What a glorious king. And he was pleased to do this. Pleased. Luke 12, Jesus says to those who were afraid listening to him there, little flock, fear not. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Our God is not reluctant in his mercy. He's not stingy with his love. He is infinitely gracious and merciful to those who are in Christ. That's why Hebrews 12 can say about Jesus that the cross was something of the joy set before him. Yes, he despised the shame, and yes, the cross was painful, shameful death. But he had joy as he went to the cross because he knew what it would win. He knew what it would accomplish He was reconciling us to himself. That's the plan, the plan for reconciliation, an overview in verses 19 and 20. Secondly, Paul kind of backs up in the flow of thought. He talks about the need for reconciliation. Now, a quick note, if you're following along on the sermon notes page, I think there's a preposition confusion in some of these. So of or for might be different in your your sermon notes than it will be up here on the screen. Follow the screen, follow the PowerPoint, not the... Not the sermon notes. Sorry about the confusion there. 
The need for reconciliation is what we're talking about here under point number two. What God has done in Jesus, reconciled us, assumes a need for reconciliation, assumes that we have been or born into an unreconciled relationship. Verse 22 says that Jesus brought us peace. Well, that assumes that there's a lack of peace. The Bible not only tells us this, but our experience does. I think you can get most people to acknowledge there's a lack of peace, a lack of complete peace, a lack of fullest peace in every direction, at least humanly speaking, and before, before we're in Christ. On our own, our minds and our emotions are fragile and they aren't at peace. They're restless and aggravated and frustrated. Our relationships often don't feel perfectly at peace. You say, oh, they do now. Okay, just hold on then, because they won't soon, right? Whatever relationship thinks you think is going perfectly smoothly right now, just hold on. It, it, it'll have a hiccup. It'll have a speed bump. By nature, and before Christ, we don't have peace with God. We don't have spiritual peace. It's like that old, great Bob Dylan song, Everything's Broken. That's a great way of describing what we were talking about last week about the image of God that human beings were created in. That image, we said last week, now in sin, has been broken. Everything has a reflection of what it used to be, like a broken mirror. But it's distorted, it's turned weird, it's bent. Now verse 21 describes the problem especially as it relates to the vertical, our relationship with God in three ways. Look at verse 21. You, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Three ways to describe the vertical problem in our relationship with God. The first, being alienated. Meaning, by nature, we're all separated from God. What happened with Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned? They hid. They ran away. Something was wrong. They didn't want to own up to it. Fellowship had been broken. Yes, God came and found them. But that's not the happy ending of the story. God came and found them and everything's all right now. No, God came and found them. He called to them in the garden in large part to tell them about the judgment that was to come. Yes, promises, promises of hope. The seed of the woman will one day crush the head of the serpent. Great gospel promise there in Genesis 3.15. But a lot of judgment all around that verse. And one of those judgments was that Adam and Eve would be thrown out of the garden. The garden being the place of God's presence and intimate communication and communion with him. It's the place of his holy blessing. It's something like a prototypical temple. And they're thrown out. Sins removed them from that kind of intimacy and blessing with God. He even put angels with flaming swords at the entrance to the garden so they couldn't enter again. He made a clear sign, there's no way going back, there's only a way forward. There is a way forward, and boy, it's a long story, right? 66 books later, we're getting a full picture of it all. But, he was making a clear statement that they are now cast out, separated, alienated. We've all been alienated since. Doesn't alienated also, as we think about it in you know, the way we use it in culture and human relationships today, doesn't it also imply isolation? We're alienated. We feel alienated. Loneliness. Not belonging. Such heavy, heartbreaking words to describe how we use the word of feeling alienated. And yet, those are human relationships. We've been alienated from the most important relationship, the one with our maker. Then there's that phrase, hostile in mind, verse 21. Hostile in mind? Now you might say, surely this can't describe everyone. Maybe alienated, separate, broken, 
fallen. Maybe you're okay with that, but maybe you'd say, surely not everyone is hostile to God. Well, Scripture insists that we are, all of us. We just display our hostility toward God differently. There are a few different forms of hostility toward God. For some, it's overt hostility. They're mad at him. Whatever God is there, they don't like him. Who is he? Who's he to tell me what to do? For others, it's pretending that he's not there. Uh, They don't have a fight with God, a fight to pick. They're just going to pretend he's not really there. That's hostility, though. A passive hostility. And then for some, they know that there's a God out there, but they make him according to their own wants and desires, their own likeness. They like their own God or gods, not the God of the Bible. And then for others, they grow up religious and maybe believe in something close to the biblical God, but they express their biblical separation from God, their alienation from God, their hostility towards God by actually obeying, by trying to control him, by trying to manipulate the situation, by being good enough so that he owes me. Put him in my hand. That's hostility toward God, even though it looks rather religious and avoids certain big sins. They're all forms of opposition and all expressions of lostness. Listen to what R.C. Sproul said about this. We see people all around us who are feverishly seeking for purpose in their lives, pursuing happiness and looking for relief from guilt to silence the pangs of conscience. We see people searching for the things that we know can be found only in Christ, But we make the false assumption that because they're seeking the benefits of God, they must therefore be seeking God. That's the very dilemma of fallen creatures. We want the things that only God can give us, but we don't want him. We want peace, but not the prince of peace. We want purpose, but not the sovereign purposes decreed by God. We want meaning found in ourselves, but not in his rule over us. We see desperate people, and we assume they're seeking for God, but they're not seeking for God. I know that because God says so. No one seeks after God. That's in Romans 3, by the way. The Bible insists that the fall in Genesis 3, has affected our minds, our thinking, our wills, not just our actions, but that's the third phrase here, actions, doing evil deeds in verse 21. Again, some do more evil deeds than others. Some do different evil deeds than others, but we're all by nature bent in the direction of evil, and our minds are in opposition to God and his law. Our actions manifest the same. Sin, rebellion, and bentness is the water we swim in. So I think for most of us, before Christ, if you're not a Christian, I think it'd be easy to say, I don't sin that much. I'm not this bad. Evil deeds, I did a few. Doing evil deeds doesn't describe yesterday, though. I mean, Friday night maybe, but not Saturday. Just laying around. You see, we don't see the sin most of the time because, in a sense, it's all we know, even while we do good. Even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags, the Bible tells us. It's like a fish that doesn't understand the concept of water because he's never been dry. Some of us don't understand the concept of sin because... We can't imagine something else. The Bible says that we're born tainted in our thoughts and our actions, and both those thoughts and actions feed into each other. It's a cycle. It's not that our actions lead to bad thinking. It's not that our bad thinking leads to bad actions. They were born with both. And the one feeds into the other. The more we do evil, the more we're blinded to it. The more we're blinded, the more we want 
to oppose God and find another one. It's in Romans 1. You can find it so clearly there. You see it also in Ephesians 4.18 more succinctly. So I'll quote that one. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of heart. The point is just this. There is great need for reconciliation. We could spend the next four or five hours talking about what the Bible says about a need for reconciliation. The problem is evident everywhere in Scripture and should be evident everywhere in our own experience if we're open to it. And here's the good news. He came to us. We couldn't go to him, but he came to us. We could not build a tower that would reach into the heavens and then we would just step right in. And even if we could build such a tower that would go all the way up to the heavens, we wouldn't want to go. Again, Romans 3. No man seeks after God. You get this great wording in Romans 5, this great word picture. Paul says, rarely will a guy die for his friend. But let's just suppose that could happen. We can imagine the possibility that a really good guy would give his life in place of a really good friend, a righteous friend who doesn't deserve what's about to come. We can imagine that. Paul says, but God shows just how much he loves us in that Christ died while we were sinners. Not good. Not righteous, not friends. A few words later, Paul says he died for his enemies. He died to show us God and to bring us to himself. It couldn't be any clearer in scripture about God coming to us than when he literally came to us in the incarnation. We couldn't go up to him. Christ came to us. He became one of us to show us God and bring us to himself. Now the third thing, the means of reconciliation. How? Paul moves forward telling us how in verse 22. He has now reconciled you, how? In his body of flesh by his death. Verse 19, he said something similar. Making peace... Same thing as reconciliation, right? Peace, reconciled, making peace by the blood of his cross is what he said in verse 19. Death is how we're reconciled to God. Because the payment for sin is death. So Jesus significantly came to die. He came to do other things. He came to teach, yes. He came to heal, yes. He came to tell us that a new age of God's plan had come. The kingdom is here. There's something of a foretaste of the new heaven and new earth, the glorious kingdom to come. It's here. It's now, in a sense. But he came to die. Now, when we're coming across terms like his body, his death, his blood, the cross... We're probably used to terms like that. We need to fight against being comfortable with those words. We need to hear them for just what they are. He died. He shed blood upon the cross. Cross, think of the shame and the humiliation and the rejection of the cross. The judgment of the cross being separate from the Father, forsaken by the Father because of the sin he was bearing. Think of the agonizing pain in the cruel death that he bore for us. And apparently we could not be saved from something nicer, something prettier. Apparently we could not be saved by something easier. The reflection of how bad the problem is, the solution required nothing less than the blood of God's own Son. That's the means. Fourth, let's talk about the results of reconciliation. The results of reconciliation are also here in verse 22, and really we'll keep talking about the how while we talk about 
the results because there's just too much overlap to separate them. Look at that phrase, to present you holy. That's marriage language. In the New Testament, present is a word used of the church one day being Christ's bride in heaven, like Ephesians chapter 5. One day, he will present the church, his bride, to himself in splendor. She'll be without spot or wrinkle. Marriage language. It's also heaven language. It will be presented to him. That's, that's final day kind of stuff, right? But if we think with our Old Testament glasses on about this word present... We'll also see another angle to it. Present you before him should make us think, For again, looking with our Old Testament glasses, of that priest and sacrifice system that was throughout the Old Testament, that tabernacle and temple thing. Because you also see in this next word in Colossians 1, something that hints at that, blameless. Now, most translations have blameless here. Literally, the translation is without blemish. I wish the translations had kept that literal reading because blameless, well, we understand that. We can picture a judge, a courtroom scene, and him saying, you're blameless. We can think of 1 Timothy 3, elders are to be blameless, that kind of thing. But without blemish should sort of ring an Old Testament bell. Because in the Old Testament, when you presented yourself, remember that word present, present yourself before God, you had to do it with sacrifices, in sacrifices without blemish. You see Paul using these Old Testament words to get us to think whole Bible. Now you can read a, a big section of the Old Testament to see this specifically Leviticus 1 to 16. I'd really encourage you to read 16 chapters of Leviticus. I don't think you'll regret it. You might start to think you're regretting it by chapter 4. I know, I read these 16 chapters this week. And if you read these 16 chapters this week, or you get to to chapter 4 and wonder why you're doing this, just simply to, you know, do what Pastor Ryan said you should do, Hopefully you can remember what I'm about to say and it can, it can really make sense of these 16 chapters and, and make it interesting for you. Leviticus 1 to 16 gives us laws for presenting ourselves before God. You see the word presenting, presented, all over Leviticus 1 to 16. That'd be a good assignment just to keep you focused and on track. Look for the word presented. These clean laws were remarkably thorough. In order to present yourself before God, you couldn't come with any kind of dirt. You had to wash yourself. Not just a good bath or a good shower. You had to do a special ceremonial washing. You had to not touch certain things when you were getting out. You had to dry off with a certain thing. You had to put on certain clothes. These had to be very clean clothes. In fact, there were specific fabrics that were thought to be more clean. You couldn't have a cut. You couldn't have blemishes. You couldn't be bleeding anywhere in your body. You could never come if you had any kind of deformity. Women had to be purified certain ways after childbirth. Had to wait a certain amount of time after menstruation. If you touched a dead animal even by accident that day, you couldn't come. You had to tie up your hair. In fact, it even says, Leviticus chapter 10, if you let down your hair, God will kill you. There are these dietary laws. If you'd recently gone astray in one of these in one of these dietary laws, you couldn't come to present yourself to God. You have to eat this piece of the animal and not that piece of the animal. These animals are bad. These animals are okay. And then, after all that, and other things I'm not mentioning, you had to bring just the right sacrifice. A sacrifice 
like God said, a sacrifice without blemish, a sacrifice without a bad hoof or, or one weird blue eye. No, no, no. A perfect, without blemish sacrifice. And then you had to present it to God just the right way. And just in case you think he's messing around here, you read Leviticus 10 and you find out that the two sons of Abraham, who are priests, were killed for messing with this. And all it says is that they made strange fire. Did it strange, whatever strange means. It doesn't say, but they didn't do according to what the Lord commanded, and a fire went out and they died. What is all this saying? Isn't it an ongoing, yearly, painful, physical reminder to the Israelites that they were, like us all, unclean? Unclean. The cleaning never sticks. The dirt always comes back. There's always a boil right around the corner, a cut that keeps you from sacrifice. There's no way to stay clean. It's so hard to get clean. And then going back to Colossians 1, Paul's point, I think, then, is that we're not able to present ourselves before God because we're not blameless. We're blemished. Now, if you're a teen, when I say blemish, what do you think of? Go ahead and say it. You won't get one. Think of pimple, right? I'm 36 today, and I woke up with a pimple on my neck. 36. Shouldn't get pimples anymore. Now, when I was a teenager, I would get my fair share of, of pimples, uh, probably no worse than the average kid, but even my mild case of pimple popping, pimple fighting, ointment spreading, was at times embarrassing and maybe even sometimes horrifying. Everyone who's 13 and older knows that, remembers that. Well, that might actually be an odd way to help us think about sin a little more clearly. Now, don't worry, kids, teenagers. I'm not saying sin produces pimples. But hypothetically, bear with me. What if physical blemishes appeared with every sin? Now, here's why I'm asking that, because... Part of the problem when we talk about sin is that we don't see them add up. We easily forget them, right? If I said, tell me the sins of your past, what, you know, we're talking about evil deeds. What are your evil deeds? Well, there's that big one in 82, still paying for that one, you know? I wouldn't have done that in 91. That was dumb. But at least I'm past it now and no one knows about it. You see, we, we forget most of the sins. There are many sins we don't even think are sins. Motives count. So what if physical blemishes appeared on our face with every sin? Because any teenager, anyone who's ever been a teenager, knows we don't like that. We long for the day when we don't get pimples. We long for the day when hormones level out and we, we don't have to work so hard at cleansing and scrubbing and popping and cleaning and all that. What if you sinned and a pimple? Big sin, big pimple. Even little sin, everyone does it. It's excusable in the culture. It's still there. It leaves a mark. Pimple. You don't think you sinned. What, what was that one for? I don't even think I sinned. Nope. You did. And just keep adding up. What if every sin was actually represented by a pockmark or a pimple or a boil or a cold sore and they never went away? We'd be covered. Don't you think then we'd see that we have a problem? Don't you think then we would feel alienated? Don't you think then we would feel blemished? Well, we're all by nature and by actions more blemished than we can possibly know. But here's the point. In Christ, we are without blemish. It's gone. It's cleared up. 
We are pure in Christ. Spotless and clean. Above reproach is the way it's worded in verse 22. Not able to be called into account. The charges can't even be filed with the judge. We're presented by Christ before the judge is blameless. Case dismissed. And notice the word in verse 22, now. He's done this already, Christian. It's now. We still sin, but it's as good as done. And though our actions still accuse us, our account, the ledger of our lives, is Christ's account. It's his righteousness. So we're perfectly clear and holy and without blemish and we're unable to be called into account. He was a perfectly spotless priest and a perfectly spotless sacrifice. There hasn't been one until him. He took our account, we could put it in financial terms, financial moral terms, I guess you could say, and and think of the fact that Jesus took our debt upon himself and paid its judgment. And he gave us his infinite riches. He swaps moral bank accounts with us through faith. He died the death that we deserved and lived the life that we should have lived. He was our substitute. Substitute righteousness. And substitute judgment. It comes to us through faith. Listen to the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 60. This is what our youth are going through right now in the youth room. Been going through this for some time. I love question 60. How are you right with God? Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments. And of never having kept any of them. And even though I'm still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. That is glorious gospel truth. Christmas is coming. We sing glorious gospel truth at Christmas. Charles Wesley wrote, Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. I'm used to those words, God and sinners reconciled, but let this Christmas be one where we pause and reflect on the richness of this, these, these descriptions. Don't be used to it. God, God, And sinners reconcile? How? Jesus is peace on earth. By the way, you can settle this right now. If you're not a Christian, you haven't been reconciled to God, you don't know that your sins are forgiven, right where you are, you can believe. You can believe that what I'm describing is true, that it's right, that's glorious, and it's hope-giving for your soul. Believe it and call out to him. Right where you are, even quietly, pray to receive that. Tell them that you believe it and that you want to embrace it. Let's move on to the fifth thing here, which is actually our first dilemma that I talked about earlier. It's the evidence of reconciliation. Look at the the beginning of verse 23. Begins with an if. That already tells us something. If... Indeed, you continue in the faith. Now, let's back up just a little bit here. Verse 22, he's reconciled you in his body. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Some biblical realities go into understanding verse 23. Let me give you a few. One, All true Christians will keep believing, keep repenting, and they will be kept. They cannot be lost. They will never fall away. John 10, no one is able to snatch them out of my hands. 
Romans 8. Those he, those he justified, he one day will glorify. The same group. The ones he justified. Didn't say some were lost, but most of them were glorified. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, may your spirit and your soul be, be preserved completely. Faithful is he who calls you, he also will do it. He will preserve you. All true Christians will keep believing, keep repenting, and hence they will be kept. Secondly, their faith will never be perfect until heaven. But their faith until then will remain. It won't always be steady. It'll have some seasons of weakness, even some seasons of doubt. But it'll always eventually reattach itself to Christ and the gospel. If it's the real thing. It won't be perfect. It'll be genuine. Their faith will never be perfect, but it will remain. Third, because true Christians will keep believing... And because there's a genuine responsibility on those Christians to keep believing, Scripture warns professing Christians to keep believing and keep repenting, to never stop, because if they stop, if they give up, if their hearts grow callous, if they grow hardened and unrepentant, they may in fact be proving that they never really had it truly to begin with. The book of Hebrews is loaded with these kinds of warnings. Don't grow dull. Don't give up. Pay attention. Don't drift away. Hold your faith firmly to the end. Give diligence unto the very end so that you might make your hope sure. On and on we could go with Hebrews. 1 John 2.19 tells us that there are some who do leave it, but they never really had it. They went out from us, it says, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. Not continued with us perfectly or continued with us sinlessly, but continued with us genuinely and generally. But they went out, it says. They left it. They deserted it that it might become plain that they're not all of us. This is Judas's story. Though being one of the twelve, Scripture calls him eventually a son of perdition. Judas wasn't really a Christian. So notice this word continue in verse 23 and how important it is. It has the connotation of location. It could almost be translated stay. Stay put. Don't move from that place. You see, this isn't some kind of New works righteousness. Verse 23 isn't saying that we're saved by grace, but we're kept in by works. It's not a test that some fail because they just barely missed how many devotions are needed in order to get in. Or because they gave 8% and sorry, 9% is the cutoff. It should have been 10, but God's gracious. He made it 9. 8, we can't do that. No. Colossians 1.23 has more to do with faith and repentance than a certain degree of Christian performance. It says, don't move from the place of faith. Don't stop believing. To quote Journey. <laughs> I can't help but think about perseverance when I hear that song. Don't stop believing. Love it. All right. No, no. <laughs> After that bad journey imitation, let me get serious here. Christian, this is not for someone else. This message, this warning is not for someone else. It's for you. It's not for those who are on the verge of the cliff. It's for you. It's for all Christians. All Christians continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Therefore, continue. And if you think you stand, take heed, lest you fall. Well, now we're in a better place to go back to verse 20 quickly and deal with this thing we could call the scope of reconciliation. 
In verse 20, it says he's reconciled all things. Well, what does that mean? Especially in light of the fact that verse 23 begins with if. It sounds like some won't have true, genuine, lasting faith. The scope of reconciliation. What does it mean when it says Jesus is reconciling all things unto himself? Well, one interpretation is that all will be saved. Universalism. No one will go to hell. Well, just read Colossians 3, two chapters later, where it says, The wrath of God is coming. So that kind of rules that out, right? Wrath of God is coming. All go to heaven. A little bit of a problem here. Just read the Gospels with its many descriptions of hell and final judgment. Well, another interpretation is reconciling all things unto himself means that we should be busy about reconciling everything in creation to Jesus. Making things right, showing his love and practical deeds, uh, expressing his justice by feeding the poor, doing art to the glory of God as an expression of beauty and truth and, and goodness. Increasingly placing more and more of life and stuff under the lordship of Christ. I think those are all good things. But I don't think that's what Colossians 1.20 is saying. Here's one reason. Colossians 1.20 doesn't give us a commandment. It doesn't say we're to do this. The whole point of this is that Jesus is doing it. He's reconciling all things. Not you. You were alienated. You were separated. You were busy with your evil deeds. That's when he reconciled you to himself. It has more to do with what Jesus accomplished on the cross than some sort of general creation principle or cultural mandate. I think instead we should view this like this. He's reconciling all things to himself, but that's not limited to redemptive reconciliation. Now, most times in the New Testament, reconciliation means we're saved, we're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're restored, we're, we're put back together with God. But not always. Sometimes it's more broad. I think here it means that he is making all things right in heaven and on earth. And when he says heaven on earth, I think he's also echoing what he already said in verse 16, where he said heaven and earth in principalities, authorities, right? Spiritual and unspiritual. There's a way in which Jesus is reconciling even things in the angelic and demonic world. He's reconciling all things. How? Well... Let's back up and think about how he's reconciling the earth. The earth's curse one day will be removed. Romans 8 says the earth right now is groaning because it's under a curse and it's waiting one day to be redeemed and fixed. One day he'll fix the earth. He'll finally reconcile his people. That's what we probably thought of when we looked at Colossians 1.20. He'll bring them to himself in the new heaven and the new earth and the Redemption will be complete. But there's also a sense in which he'll reconcile the rest of fallen creation. Those not in the new heaven and the new earth. He'll reconcile accounts with them. He'll reconcile accounts with those who rejected Jesus in his gospel. That's not a redemptive reconciliation. It's one of judgment. But in the end, here's the point. All will be right. In the end, justice will be met either through the substitutionary justice death of Jesus upon the cross for our sins, or in the eternal suffering of hell. God's glory, his justice will be glorified either way. Satan and his minions one day will be defeated and there will be peace. God has already basically done this. He's won but one day it will be clearly seen. It will be universal. It will be undeniable. Listen to what John Murray says about this. He says, In the new heaven and new earth, all conflict, enmity, disharmony, and warfare will be excluded. It will mean the final triumph of righteousness and peace. In a word, reconciliation. The powers of darkness will be cast out. And in judgment, made to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what Philippians 2 tells us. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Some will do it in worship. Some will do it. Psalms calls it out of feigned obedience. 
They'll do it because they have to. There will be an expression of his lordship one day. He is reconciling all things to himself. We can trust injustices now. Trust the God who's behind everything because one day there will be a reckoning. And then the last quick thing here is that there's a mission of reconciliation. At the end of verse 23 tells us how the Colossians, humanly speaking, had been reconciled. Paul came and preached to them. See, the gospel, they heard. It was proclaimed. So we've seen here that Jesus is reconciling by his blood a people. Now we're seeing in verse 23 here, this reconciliation came to that Colossian church by Paul proclaiming it. There's a gospel centrality to God's plan. Whether we're trying to put art under his lordship or politics in his service or community service to his justice system and his glory and a reflection of his ways. All these things may be good and useful and even a reflection of hearts that are changed. But that's not reconciliation. People are reconciled only through the blood of Christ. In order to receive that on their account, they have to hear it. In order to hear it, someone has to proclaim it. And this verse is talking about Paul proclaiming it, but we know this isn't just for apostles. It's for all of us. We're all given, according to 2 Corinthians 5, the ministry of reconciliation to plead with people, to plead to be reconciled to their creator and their savior because Christ died. Let me pray for boldness right now for us as a church. Lord, we need your help to talk about these things as we should. Lord, there have been many times where we have wimped out. There have been many times where I have wimped out, Lord, where we have not spoken boldly and confidently and joyfully about the gospel that we've come to love and believe in. We pray for help, but we thank you for the reconciling work of Jesus and that that means those sins too, our, our sins of shame, our sins of silence, our sins of self-centeredness and fear of man. Jesus died for these sins too. Oh God, we are so thankful that the hope is outside of us. We're so thankful that Jesus paid it all. There's nothing we can do to further the righteousness that's already ours in him. There's nothing we can do to increase your love because you've already given it all. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and we pray we would know this wonderful gospel more and that it would bear fruit in our lives for your glory.